quote, Caesar equaled if he did not surpass the greatest orators and generals the world had ever known. His prosecution of Dolabella unquestionably placed him in the first rank of advocates. Cicero, discussing the matter in his book Brutus, confesses that he knew no more eloquent speaker than Caesar, and calls his style chaste and pellucid, not to say grand and noble. He also wrote to Cornelius Nepos, quote within a quote, Very well then, do you know any man who, even if he has concentrated on the art of oratory to the exclusion of all else, can speak better than Caesar, or anyone who makes so many witty remarks, or whose vocabulary is so varied and yet so exact? End quote. Welcome to episode 30 of the March of History. That was a quote by Suetonius about Caesar and a quote within that quote by Cicero about Caesar. And I'm starting out today's episode with these quotes because Caesar's abilities as an orator are featured prominently in this episode. And praise from Cicero as one of the consensus greatest orators in history is high praise indeed. But before we go any further, let me just remind you of what happened in our last episode. You'll remember the tribes of Gaul gathered together and asked Caesar to help rid them of an army of over 120,000 German soldiers in Gaul. The Gauls had at one point invited these Germanic peoples over the Rhine as mercenaries, but at this point, the Germans were feeling a little too at home and had been demanding Gallic territory, raiding tribes allied to Rome, and taking hostages. This was behavior that Rome, and more specifically Caesar, was not going to put up with. Caesar attempted to meet with Ariovistus, the king of these Germans, a tribe known as the Suebi, but Ariovistus was not interested. Soon Caesar and Ariovistus were butting heads and a war of words had begun. So at the end of the last episode, Caesar gathered his legions, gathered ample supplies for them, and set off at a forced march to meet Ariovistus and his Germans on the field of battle. And that is where we pick up episode 30 of the March of History. And this time you'll notice that Caesar gathered large amounts of supplies for his army before heading off to confront a horde of barbarians. As capable as Caesar is, he is human, like the rest of us after all, and he does make the occasional mistake. Like when he ran out of food while fighting the Helvetii and had to kind of turn around and head for the, the nearest village and then the Helvetii chased his army. But one thing about Caesar is that he learns extremely quickly from what few mistakes he does make. And he was not about to run into issues of food shortages a second time. After three days of forced marches with his legions, Caesar gets word that Ariovistus had also been marching with his entire army for three days as well, and was headed for the main town of the Sequani, called Vasantio, with the intention of taking it. And just a reminder for you, the Sequani are the tribe that had originally invited the Germans over the Rhine as mercenaries to fight their war against the Aedui for them. The Germans had won their war against the Aedui, but then had turned on the Sequani and demanded two-thirds of their land, had occupied their cities, and had taken their children of their nobles as hostages. Now this town of Vesantia, which is modern-day Besançon in France, north of Geneva, roughly, near the border of France and Switzerland, this town of Vesantia contained huge numbers of resources that could supply an army that was at war. And in Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars, he describes Vesantio in detail. Basically, he says that the river Dua 
spelled D-O-U-B-S, so I apologize if my French is off, but that this river surrounded the city by almost 360 degrees and that the remaining strip of land around the city that isn't surrounded and protected by the river is actually dominated by a mountain. And I'm going to put up pictures of this city, what it looks like now, and what it looked like in the ancient world for you on the Instagram when this episode comes out. So if you want to have a visual of it, go ahead and pull that up. It's up to you. But basically what I'm getting at is this city was a small fortress. It was surrounded on three sides by a river and on the fourth side by a mountain. It was not easy to get into. And because of this, because it has a lot of supplies for an army at war, and because it has a strong defensive position, Ariovistus is attempting to take control of the town for his army. Of course, Caesar sees this and realizes that whoever reaches Vasantio first would have a major advantage. And Caesar never being one to be outworked or out-hustled or let his opponents move quicker than him increases the speed of his army's march until he has them forced marching night and day to reach the town first. And with this sort of mindset and Caesar's demonic energy, the Romans win the race and make it to Vasantio first gaining possession of all the supplies that come with the town. Now, here is a perfect place to talk about one of those attributes that made Caesar such a strong military commander. Throughout the history of warfare, if you study great commanders, one of the things you will consistently notice is that they move fast, faster than all their contemporaries and faster than their enemies think possible. This is true of Alexander the Great, This is true of Genghis Khan and the Mongols. This is true of Napoleon Bonaparte. This is true of General Rommel and of Patton. This is true of almost all great commanders throughout history. Commanders and armies that move significantly faster than their opponents can often win battles just through swiftness alone. Don't believe me? Look at what the German Wehrmacht did to France in World War II with Blitzkrieg when its panzer divisions moved quicker than the French commanders thought was possible and conquered France in a mere six weeks. Or, look at what Napoleon Bonaparte did to the Austrians at the Battle of Ulm. By marching his troops faster and harder than the enemy could keep up with, or even credit as plausible, Napoleon won a massive victory with hardly any fighting. In his own words, Napoleon said, quote, I have destroyed the Austrian army by simply marching. End quote. Now, we've already seen in earlier episodes of this podcast that when it comes to politics, legislation, creating political alliances, and even writing, Caesar is just head and shoulders faster than his competition. And when he travels around the empire on state business, he wows contemporaries by traveling as fast as 90 miles a day on average. This in a time where a horse was your fastest option. This man seems to have had endless stores of energy and an obsession with moving fast. And it turns out warfare was no exception to this obsession with speed. As I take you through the story of the Gallic Wars and then the Roman Civil Wars, you will see that Caesar wins many battles and gains many advantages by moving himself and his army at lightning speed. And you'll see many examples in history where commanders will behave in an overly cautious way, constantly putting off engagement with the enemy to give themselves more and more time to gain a numerical advantage or to gain additional supplies, etc., etc. And what these commanders fail to realize is that every additional day you have to gather troops and supplies for your army gives your enemy an additional day to do the same and to get better prepared with his defenses. 
but Caesar was a commander of brilliance and knew full well that the best advantage in war was attacking the enemy so quickly that they had barely begun to prepare their defenses. Rather than waiting until he had a numerical advantage, Caesar will repeatedly take an inferior force and attack a far superior force before they have time to prepare. By doing this, he gains the element of surprise and disorientates his enemy because he has turned their sure assumptions about warfare on their heads, meaning his enemies thought it would take him, say, 10 days to reach their position, and Caesar was there in three days. This really shakes the confidence of your enemy because clearly their ability to estimate realistic time frames in this war has been shattered. And you may ask me, if moving quickly at the enemy is such a common quality of great commanders throughout history, why do more commanders not do this? And the reason is, it takes nerves of steel. It is human nature, when you are in charge of the lives of tens or even hundreds of thousands of people, to want to be 100% sure of everything before making a move, to cross all your T's and dot all of your I's, and then do it a second and a third time. And to me, the perfect example of a commander who does this is American Civil War General George McClellan, and later governor of my very own state, New Jersey. He was a general in the American Civil War, put in charge of the Union forces for quite a period of the war, and McClellan would constantly overestimate the strength of his enemy, put off fighting them, and request more troops and more supplies. And as Edward M. Stanton, the U.S. Secretary for War at the time, said of McClellan, quote, if he had a million men, he'd swear the enemy has two millions, and then he would sit down in the mud and yell for three, end quote. I think that's a great quote. Nothing to do with Caesar or Roman history, but I just wanted to sneak that in there. And McClellan is just one example of a commander in this mold, but there are many throughout history. And it goes against the nature of almost all humans to rush headlong at an enemy twice your size with barely a moment to think and calculate whether this is a good idea or not. And many times rushing at an enemy that it outnumbers you looks like stupidity before it's done. It's only revealed as an act of inspired genius after the fact. To give you an example, if you are a commander sitting there with 50,000 soldiers, and you have just found yourself at war with an enemy with 100,000 soldiers, it is extremely counterintuitive to say, let me rush right at them immediately. No matter how much training you've had or history you've read, it takes a commander with nerves of steel and astounding confidence in himself and his troops to make this decision. Well, Caesar was that man with those nerves of steel, and we have long since learned on this podcast that he is overflowing with confidence. And we will see time and time again where Caesar will rush at enemies who have superior numerical advantages rather than waiting for additional reinforcements. And don't think for a second that he only does this against Gauls or Germans who the Romans may see as a second-class opponent or at least less capable than the Roman army. He does this against Roman armies later in the Civil War to devastating effect. But getting back to our narrative, after taking Visantio, Caesar gives his legionaries several days to rest as he gathers food and supplies for them. And like most armies throughout history, Caesar's legionaries did far better when kept physically busy than when given time to sit around and think and talk too much. Because with this spare time, the soldiers begin to talk to the local townspeople of Asantio, the Sequani. 
and the legionaries asked questions of them about the Germans that they would soon be facing, and traveling Gallic traders told them all sorts of horror stories about these Swabi, about these Germans. They describe the Germans as being extremely tall and strong, and they say the Germans are unbelievably brave and skilled with weapons. The traders even said that when they had met the Germans in battle, the Gauls had been unable to even stand how fearsome they looked and the sternness of their gaze. And just a side note here, Caesar throughout the Gallic commentaries depicts the Germanic peoples and the Gauls as two very distinct different groups. And for those who don't know anything about the history of the Germanic peoples, they are a long way from being a united group of people known as Germany. That won't happen for thousands of years or almost thousands of years until the year 1871. At this point in history, the Germanic peoples are a far-ranging series of warring tribes that have a common or similar language and customs, much like the Gauls do, but no common leadership, also much like the Gauls. And some more modern historians have had their doubts about how distinct they really were from the Gauls. Some suspect that Caesar was making the Germans out to be an even more barbaric and scary people than the Gauls. And the Gauls were already seen as a scary and barbaric people by the Romans. And he was doing this, you know, these people would make the case, for the purposes of justifying his actions with his Roman audience and for the purposes of telling a better story. And regardless of if this is true or not, if the Germans are more similar to the Gauls and there's, there's less difference between them than Caesar depicts or not, throughout the commentaries, the Germans are consistently represented as physically bigger, tougher, more barbaric, and less civilized than the Gauls. You see, there's this idea in Rome that the more contact with the civilized world barbaric peoples have, the more civilized they become. And there's probably a lot of truth to this. This idea that contact with Rome Romanized foreign peoples. And of course, these Germans were from much further away from the civilized world, aka Rome, than other barbarians encountered up to this point by the Romans, and therefore must be correspondingly more barbaric. But the Romans did see savage virtues in barbaric peoples, such as an almost simple sort of unflinching bravery and fierceness in battle. And from Caesar's descriptions of the Germans throughout his nine years of war in Gaul, it is hard to deny that these people just seemed fiercer and tougher than the Gauls. And the reason I bring all this up is not just to give you a background on the world Caesar is painting for his audience, but also because these Roman descriptions of the Germans as being pure, fierce, unspoiled warriors from the dark forest of Germania will have significance 2,000 years later when the Nazis come to power in Germany. You see, roughly 2,000 years later, the Nazis will look to history to prove that they are this master Aryan race, as they constantly claim to be. And in their eyes, nothing is better than pointing to Roman descriptions of the Germans as being an almost unmixed, pure race with unparalleled bravery and fierceness. Now, of course, we can't blame the Romans for the horrific atrocities the Nazis committed thousands of years later. And Caesar isn't the only or even the most important Roman writer about ancient Germanic peoples that the Nazis would take from. The most important, I believe, was Tacitus. But it is very interesting to see what kind of unintended consequences people's action, or in this case, even writings, can have on the future. Caesar and other Roman authors wrote about these Germanic barbarians, 
for Roman audiences and for their own purposes, and really could have had no concept that these descriptions would be twisted into propaganda in the 1940s and 1930s to commit genocide. It's just one of those crazy twists of history. One of those uh, examples of maybe like a butterfly effect, where one change in history causes dramatic changes thousands of years down the line. But we have gone down a bit of a rabbit hole here, so let's, let's get back to our narrative. These descriptions of unbelievably brave Germans, so fierce and skilled with weapons that the Gauls are barely able to meet their gaze, was having an effect on Caesar's legionaries, especially since they had time to sit around and think about these stories. And very soon, these stories begin to create a general panic within the Roman army. Now, Caesar says the panic began among the military tribunes and prefects. These were the men who had followed Caesar from Rome in the hope of getting close with Caesar and making a name for themselves in Rome. They were mostly young men of aristocratic stock, and they were certainly not hardened veterans of the legions by any means. And these tribunes and prefects and other young well-to-do men suddenly began to offer a variety of excuses as to why they had to depart for Rome immediately. And others of their kind stayed with the army because they did not want to be seen as cowards, but even these men could not keep the look of fear from their faces and at times couldn't even hide their tears, so they mostly hid away in their tents and, quote, bemoaned their fate, as Caesar says. And this story, the fact that Caesar really puts the blame on people coming from higher social status does seem to show that the commentaries on the Gallic Wars that Caesar wrote were meant for more than just the high-class Senate's consumption. It would seem that if Caesar is portraying the story in this way, then the common Roman people must have been an intended audience as well, because the common people would get a kick out of seeing all these young equites rushing to flee the army at the first sight of danger. But this atmosphere of fear among many of the young tribunes and prefects takes a toll on the whole army. And soon the whole army could be seen signing and sealing their wills, in other words, preparing to die. They're all getting together and, and signing new wills and, and preparing for their death. And Caesar says that a lot of complaining fueled by fear was happening, and that eventually this began to take a toll on even the common legionaries, centurions, and cavalry officers. And many of these men, the ones I just mentioned, the, the legionaries, the centurions, the cavalry officers, wanted to appear less cowardly than the young aristocrats and blame their misgivings on, quote, the restricted, narrow march of the route, the depths of the forest between themselves and Arivistus, or the arraignment of satisfactory transport for the corn supply, end quote. And that's direct from Caesar in the Gallic Commentaries. Now, this last justification about the satisfactory transport for the food supplies seems to me justified considering they had just run out of food in the very last campaign against the Helvetii. And here's another incident of Caesar putting quite a strong argument in the mouth of someone going against him, something that I always find interesting about the commentaries. And some of the veteran officers even go so far as to tell Caesar that the legions would refuse to break camp and march when given the order due to their fear. And disobeying your commander like this was a cardinal offense in the disciplined Roman military machine. Now, it should be noted that there is an ancient historian, Cassius Dio, who has a very different take on this story. 
But keep in mind, Cassius Dio was born in 155 AD, some 200 years after these events. Born 200 years after the events. So it's not as if Caesar is taking part in the events. Of course, he's the protagonist, so he has some potential bias, but at least he's, he's there. Cassius Dio is writing from the span or from a distance of 200, 250 years? Who knows, 230 years? I don't know how old he was when he wrote it. Anyway, Cassius Dio claims that Caesar had the intention all along of picking a fight with Ariovistus. He says that Caesar made his list of demands that we talked about in our last episode to infuriate Ariovistus into saying something aggressive back, therefore justifying Caesar going to war with him. Further, Cassius Dio says of the whole story I just told you, where Caesar says his troops were speaking to the Gallic traders and fear spread among the army, Cassius Dio says of this that the real objection of the army came from the fact that the Senate and the people of Rome hadn't authorized this war at all. Therefore, they were all risking their lives for Caesar's own personal ambitions. Now, again, the caveat is, Cassius Dio is the only one that says this, and he was writing over 200 years, or he was born over 200 years after this happened. So take it with a grain of salt, but, you know, I just figured I'd, as always in this podcast, try to give you all takes. But in my personal opinion, my humble, non-historian opinion, regardless of whether the soldiers presented Caesar with the objections that he states, or the ones that Cassius Dio states, both to me seem like they could be easy screens for covering for your fear, right? If you're afraid of the Germans, well, well you can't say you're afraid because you're a soldier, so you come up with a variety of excuses. So, Caesar knows he has a growing problem on his hand with fear spreading through his troops like wildfire. He knows he needs to act quickly to put these doubts to rest. What's more, whatever he says needs to be very convincing to overcome the combined fear of so many people. And we've seen many times throughout this podcast already that Caesar is a top-notch orator and has more charm in his little finger than most politicians can muster up in the course of an entire career. Just remember back to the quote that we started this episode out with by Cicero. Even Cicero, known to be one of the greatest orators of all time, had that high of an opinion of Caesar. Well, it's going to take every bit of Caesar's abilities as an orator and every bit of his charm to end this crisis, and Caesar is well aware of this. So he summons a concilium, or council, of all the centurions and senior officers in his army. That would be roughly 360 centurions if all posts were filled, plus the other senior officers. And here, I will read a section from Caesar's Gallic War Commentaries and let him speak to you in his own words, albeit with my considerably less charismatic delivery. Quote, As soon as Caesar was aware of the situation, he called a council, ordered centurions of all ranks to attend, and severely reprimanded them, primarily for thinking that it was their business to inquire or think about either the direction or the strategy of the march. During his consulship, Caesar went on, Ariovistus had eagerly sought friendly relations with the Roman people. Why would anyone now conclude that he was going to abandon his obligation rashly? In fact, he was convinced that once Ariovistus understood the terms he was offering and considered the fairness of the conditions, he would not spurn the favor either of Caesar or of the Roman people. And Caesar goes on, And even if Ariovistus did start a war, Caesar continued, spurred on by some mad fury, what was there to fear even then? Why did they despair of their own courage? or his anxious concern for their well-being. 
The danger posed by this enemy had already been experienced in the time of our fathers, when the Cimbri and Teutoni were expelled by Gaius Marius. On that occasion, it was clear that the army had deserved as much credit as its commander. The same danger had also been experienced more recently during the slave revolt in Italy. In this instance, the slaves were helped to some degree by the experience and training which they had received from us. End quote. And we can see in this speech that Caesar starts out quite sternly, reminding the officers of their duty and the discipline that they should be showing as officers in the Roman military. He also reminds them that it is not their role to question the strategy or direction of the march. And after that, he reaches for a dose of reason logic rather than saying, do what I say because I said so. He understands that sometimes even soldiers need to know the why and the reasons behind their actions rather than just being told to obey. And he explains to them that for various reasons, there may not even be a war. But if there is one, the Roman soldiers have numerous reasons to feel confident of victory based on their past deeds. And after the quote I just read you, Caesar goes on in his speech to cut the myth of the German supermen down to size a little. He tells his officers that the Germans had caught the Idoe by surprise after a protracted war. Therefore, it had been strategy rather than some overwhelming bravery that had won them the war. And no army of barbarians was going to outstrategize the Roman army. So with all this, in addition to reminding them of their places, Caesar is building the confidence of his officers by reminding them of their own abilities and their own past deeds. He's humanizing the German foe in the eyes of his officers and making them look more like like a beatable group of barbarians rather than some kind of superhumans. It's also almost like his army is lacking confidence. The Roman army is lacking confidence. And Caesar as a person is just so overflowing with confidence that he's saying, here, I have enough confidence for all of us. Let me share it with you. And in my opinion, this is one of the many reasons that Caesar's legionaries love him, because by themselves, they may often feel unsure of themselves, scared, frightened, timid, but in the presence of Caesar, and when under his command, he gave them permission to be confident. He showed them how to be confident. And this is true of strong men throughout history and today. Typically, their followers are nowhere near as bold or confident without the example of their hyper-confident leader. Well, seeing Caesar's example of just unshakable self-belief and confidence gave his soldiers permission to feel confidence in themselves. And for giving them that rare feeling of self-confidence, his soldiers loved him. Caesar goes on to say in his speech, quote, Finally, the Germans were the same people who had often clashed with the Helvetii, and the Helvetii had frequently beaten them, not only within their own borders, but also in Germany itself, and yet the Helvetii had proved no match for our army. And Caesar goes on to say in his speech, quote, As for those who shifted the blame for their own fear onto a pretended anxiety about corn supplies or the narrowness of the route, they were doing so out of presumption. After all, they apparently either doubted their commander's commitment or they were dictating it to Caesar. Yet his attention was taken up with all these things. The Sequani, the Luigi, the Lingones were supplying corn, and the crop was already ripe in the fields. As for the route of their march, in a short while they would themselves decide it. 
on the subject of their declared intention not to follow orders and raise the standards, it did not trouble him at all. He was well aware that whenever an army had dis disobeyed its commander in the past, it was either because fortune had deserted him, as proven by his failure on the field, or because he had been discovered in some crime and found guilty of, rap of rapacity. That he, Caesar, was himself guilty of no crime was evident from the whole course of his life. That he was a man who enjoyed good fortune was evident from his campaign against the Helvetii. End quote. See, there's that confidence. Caesar's literally showing up to this meeting and supplying enough confidence for the entire army. Quote, and so, Caesar concluded, he would do at once what he had intended to put off until a later date. The very next night, during the fourth watch, they would strike camp. Then he would know as soon as possible whether their sense of shame and duty was stronger than their fear. Moreover, even if no one at all followed him, he would still set out, with only the Tenth Legion, for he had no doubts about its loyalty. Indeed, it would in future serve as his bodyguard. Caesar had treated this legion with special favor and had the fullest confidence in its courage. End quote. In this final part of his speech, Caesar challenges the soldiers' bravery and he shames them and says that he will go on even if they decide to desert their commander. And he makes sure to single out the 10th legion and makes them feel special. The idea being that this legion has just been praised so highly in front of the entire army, and they love that their commander has so much faith in them, and they will follow Caesar wherever he asks simply to live up to that esteem that he seems to have for them. In other words, he's flattered them. Clearly, Caesar knows how to motivate soldiers, and the 10th legion will become Caesar's favorite and most trusted legion throughout the Gallic Wars but this is the first time he makes mention of that. What's more, singling out just the 10th legion hurts the pride of the other legions, and they will be anxious to prove that they are just as brave as the 10th legion. And often, in reading about Caesar as a commander, I personally think that his true genius was in human psychology rather than in tactics, but I'll go into that in a, in a later podcast episode. And of course, to end his speech, Caesar makes sure to give the army no more time to think. After all, it had been too much time spent thinking on the part of the soldiers that had at least partially caused this mess to begin with. And after the conclusion of the speech, Caesar says that the change in the officers was like night and day. Suddenly, they were extremely enthusiastic about the campaign, and they want to get started right away. The 10th Legion immediately sends its military tribunes to Caesar to express their gratitude at his confidence in them and to say that they are ready to start the campaign whenever he is. And soon all the legions are sending their tribunes and their senior centurions to Caesar to, quote, make amends, as Caesar says. They want Caesar to know that they are with him and will follow him, and they assure him that they had never been afraid <laughs> and that they had never questioned his leadership or thought that the command lied with them rather than with him. And Caesar, on his part, accepts their apology, and all is well in the army again. And this whole story is an excellent example of how Caesar was like a magician when it came to manipulating the emotions of an army. He understood intimately how they thought and what would motivate them. And scenes like this contributed enormously to the devotion this army is building to their commander. Because to us, it may seem obvious that Caesar took the actions that he did, and in hindsight, after having seen the positive results, it seems even more obvious. 
but many other Roman commanders would have reacted radically differently to their officers telling them that the troops might mutiny out of fear if he gave the orders to march. Many commanders would have felt that the troops needed to be more disciplined and needed to fear their own officers more than they feared the enemy. And a commander like Marcus Licinius Crassus may have decimated the legions, having every tenth man at random beaten to death by his comrades as punishment for poor discipline and for letting fear dominate them. These kind of brutal shows of discipline were not only available to Caesar, they were probably the more obvious choice in the context of the Roman army. But Caesar doesn't punish the soldiers. He doesn't brutally lash out at them. Really, he thinks outside the box of what most Roman commanders would do. He simply sits down and talks to them and uses his oratory and charm to win them over to his side. And in the end, his troops come away from this incident not afraid of him, not resentful of him, but absolutely devoted to him and confident. And that is the difference between an uninspired disciplinarian like a Crassus and a commander of inspired genius like a Julius Caesar. Caesar takes this crisis of his troops losing confidence and he turns it into an opportunity to boost their confidence in themselves and in him as their commander. And finally, Caesar does take some of what his troops say into account. They were concerned about the path he had chosen to reach Ariovistus, and Caesar reacts to this concern. He sits down with the druid Divicciacus and he finds an alternate route, a route that would require the army to march an additional 46 Roman miles, but would lead them through open country, which the legions would be more comfortable with. So this is an inconvenience for Caesar and his plans, but he is willing to do it to show his officers that he takes their advice into account. And so the legions begin marching before dawn the very next day, as Caesar had said, with Caesar at their head for seven days straight without break until Caesar's scouts come back and tell him that Ariovistus and his army of the Suebi Germans are only 22 Roman miles away. And that is where we will end this episode today on the March of History. But before we end it, let me just remind you of a few things. If you listen on the Apple Podcast Store or any kind of podcast store that allows you to leave reviews, we would love it if you would leave a review with what you think of the podcast. Five stars are much appreciated. Also, make sure to share the podcast with any history lovers that you know. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you get notifications for new episodes. And give our Instagram a follow at The March of History. Tons of cool history content on there. Our Twitter is at March underscore history, which I am now using and also has cool history content. Our Facebook page, you can just search The March of History. That has a lot of the same content as the Instagram and and is a great forum for fans of the podcast to interact with each other. And if you just want to send us a private message, go ahead and shoot us a message at themarchofhistory at gmail.com. And finally, I'll just say thank you for listening. We appreciate all your support and we look forward to next episode.